This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. You're listening to the Oanda Market Insights Podcast with me, Johnny Hart. Each week we preview and review all the big business and market stories with Oanda senior market analysts from around the world. And this week it is Craig Earlham in London and Jeff Halley in Jakarta. How are you doing, guys? Really good. Great to be here. It's fantastic to have you on, uh, Jeff, for a change. Uh, we're giving Ed Moyer a break this week. Uh, it's been a strange old week, really, because we've had a sort of holding pattern. We're not far away from where we were this time last Friday. If you think about last Friday, and we discussed, Craig, uh, the massive market reaction to the news about the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, this week, we've had Moderna, of course, and that's not been quite a reaction because it's already perhaps priced in and, and maybe we're getting used to that. Brexit talks, well, we all know they haven't gone very far this week at all, if, if hardly. And uh, the presidential uh, election, well, that sort of just moves on and, and is still in that holding pattern. We're still waiting for something real to happen. Although, of course, Georgia looks like it's over and done with. So, Craig, if I can start with you, your overview of the week as far as the markets are concerned and that reaction to Moderna wasn't quite the same as it was to Pfizer. No, it wasn't. Uh, but again, like I think like uh, we've said before, these um, I think the, the fact that we got that first announcement was the one that gave that big lift to the markets. But what we started to see even early last week was that Moderna started getting mentioned alongside the uh, the Pfizer announcement because uh, of the similarities between the technology that they're both using. So once the announcement came a week later, we got that bump on Monday. It was only around 1% or 2%, and the markets kind of settled once again. Uh, and once you've seen those two, and we'd already been talking months ago about the fact that we were going to get vaccine announcements potentially as early as the end of the year, it was just a case of waiting for an, uh, for AstraZeneca and Oxford to say something. Now, they didn't announce results like Pfizer and Moderna did. So really, that got a very muted response. And even when they do announce results, um, even if they're positive, I still think the, the response might be more similar to Moderna, really, than to Pfizer. The, the Pfizer announcement is the one that really got people excited, the idea that we could actually now envisage a scenario even though there is obstacles where the middle of next year we're starting to return to life as normal. Now, we should obviously celebrate them all because the more vaccines that are announced, the more that can be distributed and the faster that all this can happen. But uh, I think we're also getting these announcements now against the backdrop of the reality of the situation we're currently going through. And what that is, is record COVID cases, record COVID hospitalizations, record COVID deaths, unfortunately. Uh, and we don't know how long this is going to last. The UK is on lockdown apparently now for a couple more weeks. But would anyone really be surprised if that is forced to be extended because we're not seeing the kind of results we're, we're hoping for? The US is seeing more and more restrictions uh, and we could see re more regional lockdowns imposed there now over the course of the next few weeks. And that's going to cause disruptions itself. So there is some really good news, medium to long term, but the near term, there's still big downside risks. And Jeff, of course, you have a close eye on all things uh, Asia. What's the general atmosphere as far as the vaccine reaction is at the moment? And of course, uh, coronavirus, because uh, they've stemmed the growth in many parts of where you are. What is the situation at the moment? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the reaction's been more muted uh, out here. Uh, for the most part, much of Asia has actually managed to control uh, the COVID-19 pretty well exceptions being uh, Indonesia, where I am, the Philippines. But we are seeing today 23 new cases in the community in Hong Kong, and they're moving to lockdowns again, just as this 
Singapore, um, Singapore, Hong Kong air bubble was about to start, and uh, they're predicting that there will be a fourth uh, wave there. I, much like uh, Craig was saying, uh, the market effectively uh, priced in two years of growth and recovery in the space of two hours after that Moderna announcement came out. And as other vaccine announcements come out, it's sort of like a, a declining marginal utility in market reaction. I think what we're seeing mostly this week in Asia, as we've seen in the US and Europe, is profit taking. So those uh, big wins that were made on the initial moves, investors uh, have got a bit impatient and have started to, uh, to, to, to roll back uh, and reduce some of that positioning and lock in the gains. And that's led to these sideways markets uh, this week as we've been lacking uh, any meaningful drivers to kick on this rally. I mentioned the presidential election, which uh, a certain amount of inertia at the moment, Jeff. Are markets at all worried at the moment or do they just think Trump's eventually going to go and the Democrats are going to take over? Or is it very much looking at the Senate as well? and uh, the fight over those two seats in Georgia? That will definitely be important, but that won't happen until early January, and so it's really not on the horizon at the moment. Um, clearly, the only person who thinks that Donald Trump hasn't uh, lost this election is the, the president himself. Nevertheless, he is still the president, and so I think around January the 20th. Um, I think, well, my personal opinion is, is that President Trump is worth some volatility spikes uh, over the coming uh, six weeks to two months. But those volatility spikes um, will be short-term in nature and they won't change the underlying trend in the market, which is higher asset prices propelled by monetary policy around the world and the potential for a global recovery as these vaccines move past the final regulatory uh, hurdles into the year end and start uh, mass production into the new year. Craig, the interminable Brexit talks uh, sort of continue, although we've had a, a lot of ups and downs this week. Some of the people uh, in the talks uh, getting COVID and the Prime Minister, of course, uh, is having to do everything virtually. But I mean, is, is there light at the end of this very, very, very long tunnel this time next week? May we have a deal? There has to be. There just has to be. Four and a half years of, of this can't end up in no deal. We talked collapsing at the last minute over fishing uh, and over level playing field. I think that would be absolutely obscene. Uh, and I don't think that's the route that we're heading down. It's been extremely quiet these last few weeks ever since the talks were effectively put on pause um, because I think the kind of public brinkmanship just got taken to a far too extreme a level where one side was going, one or both sides were going to look weak when a deal was finally announced. Uh, I think the fact that both the, both sides have been extremely quiet the last few weeks has been in order for them to be able to compromise and a deal to be announced in a way that both of them look like they've done well out of this negotiation. Uh, so I think that's been a real positive sign and it does seem that compromises are being made. Obviously, the one thing that this situation needed now was COVID uh, in order to try and add further delays. It's the 20th of November. We've got a month and 11 days on uh, left us uh, in this transitional period. So that's not very long to actually make these final compromises and have everything ratified in the various parliaments and signed off by the European Parliament as well. So we are quickly running out of time, but the reports do suggest again that we could potentially see a deal as early as next week, but it may just have to be virtual discussions now over the course of this weekend before that usual final ceremonial um, visit 
between uh, Ursula von der Leyen and uh, Boris Johnson because obviously the final compromises will have to be done by the leaders because uh, that's how these things typically do go. Uh, but they, like I say, the signs are the signs are positive, and I think it it would just be uh, it would just be a, a horrific failure if this did collapse at this late stage over issues which are so marginal, a complete waste of everyone's time, and it would come at the worst possible time um, with regards to the pandemic. And it would also leave the UK in a very weak position then when negotiating with the the US because they're not negotiating potentially, um, assuming the results that we're seeing now are, are confirmed. They're not negotiating with Donald Trump, they're negotiating with Joe Biden and he's made his position very clear, clear with regards to Northern Ireland and the, the impact that the internal market bill would have uh, with regards to the UK's position on this. So when you consider all of these things, when you consider the fact that it'd be jeopardising a deal with the largest trading partner, jeopardising a deal with the US under a potential or an apparent Joe Biden administration, then you you fail to see the benefits of these talks collapsing. And therefore, I, I've used this term a lot, uh, sometimes to my own detriment over the course of the last four and a half years, but common sense will prevail. Uh, and I'm still adamant that that's going to be the case. Jeff, the big news in Asia this week, of course, a third of the world's GDP is out of Asia and a big agreement signed this week. Tell us about that. Yeah, the uh, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is a, a bit of a mouthful, so we'll call it RCEP for now on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Basically, what it's doing is rolling up a lot of bilateral trade treaties between trade agreements between all these countries in Asia and, uh, and, and, and putting them all into one document. As far as growth goes, it's not really very accretive in, in a big way. This is not a big bang trade agreement. I think what's important, though, is that for the very first time, Japan, South Korea and China are all participating in one trade agreement for the first time ever. And these are the three biggest economies, uh, particularly uh, in Northern Asia, which has outperformed uh, the ASEAN countries over the last uh, year during COVID-19. I think it's really a blueprint for uh, trade in Asia going forward. We're going to see deeper regional partnerships going forward. Um, that is going to be a huge boost of growth. I think it's positive for Asia and it will just confirm that the engine of growth going forward into this decade will be Asia and not necessarily uh, the United States and Europe. This isn't the most comprehensive of agreements. I think tariffs are only being uh, 90% cut when you consider that the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for example, cut more than 99% of tariffs, similar with the US, the EU-Japan trade deal, EU-Canada trade deal, and what the UK and EU are working towards, for example, probably UK and US as well. This is not uh, very comprehensive, but I think it's it's the first stepping stone towards aligning uh, all of these different economies in Asia uh, and, and, and enabling uh, trade to happen more easily and uh, with fewer uh, with fewer with fewer obstacles ultimately. So I do think it could become more comprehensive as the years go on, and it could be become much stronger if India ever does uh, get on board. Uh, but the fact that this is a trade partnership that includes China, Japan, uh, and South Korea, I think is is hugely symbolically significant, and should lay the groundwork as Jeff already alluded to for 
to for Asia to continue to uh, and remain and spin to the next decade the, the growth and en- the, the major growth engine. Hmm. Uh- Craig, we couldn't have uh, an Oanda Market Insights podcast without mentioning your favourite subject, Bitcoin. And uh, I'll get Jeff in on this in a second, but it's edging ever closer to an all-time high again. You must be uh, quite pleased about that. Well, it gives us something different to talk about beyond trade wars, Brexit, and now the pandemic. But it's it's interesting. It's just exploded once again, and um, it, it, it's going to kind of start this this this, on, this battle again between the the Bitcoin advocates and the Bitcoin skeptics. Those who believe that this is just a sign that it's being more accepted into the world, and that the, 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 the technology has come on leaps and bounds, and that it's it's I don't know. You hear all these terms banded around gold 2.0. That it's this is a sign that the the global monetary system is failing, and it's all of these things. Um, I, I'm probably more in the in the skeptic uh, basket still. Uh, while there is, um, for example, there is the, the the Bitcoin has made progress, you could say over the last few years. I still just it's just still not widely used. Um, it is still used by a tiny pocket of society, and I don't think that's really changed that significantly. There is kind of this thing with PayPal where people are saying that that's a sign that it's being used. Banks are using the technology more and more, but that's not really an acceptance of Bitcoin. That's saying that the technology is sound, not that Bitcoin has a, a massive future. And just, I think, the clearest sign, really, that while some things have come on slightly, other things just haven't changed. All you have to do is look at the price action over the last month to see that it's gone from 11,000 to 19,000 on seemingly very little. Um, then, uh, I, and everything is obviously used as an excuse for the explosion higher. We've got a we've got a COVID vaccine by Bitcoin. We've got more monetary stimulus buy Bitcoin, risk on, buy Bitcoin, risk off, safe haven Bitcoin. This just, again, it just it just gives this resemblance, this thing that is, this very, it still feels like 2017 and different people will obviously disagree. But uh, I think the wild volatility is the thing that really undermines, is one of the things that really undermines uh, Bitcoin as far as I'm concerned. And when you're seeing something rising as rapidly as that, and don't get me wrong, I know Tesla's up 600% uh, from its lows this year. So it's hard to really compare. Bitcoin's making up solid ground on that, only up 400%. Uh, but it just doesn't feel like it's still built on solid foundations. And until we start getting more widespread adoption, then I struggle to see how it can be justified. Just as we're seeing this wild speculative ride higher, uh, this is still extremely susceptible uh, to the kind of crash that we saw after late 2017. And I wouldn't be surprised if Bitcoin hits 40,000, if it hits 50,000. But one thing I'm certain about is the faster that happens, the harder the fall is going to be. Jeff, would you agree with that? Sorry, I was just taking off my uh, tinfoil anti-conspiracy hat so I could talk about Bitcoin. Um, look, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of Dutch tulip disease uh, appearance about Bitcoin at the moment. Uh, look, it may well become more mainstream in the future, but when, a, when a, uh, an asset, uh, supposedly an investment asset, has ranges of 1,000 to 1,500 US dollars per day, I'm struggling to see how you can take it seriously as an alternative investment. I think there's, as Craig said, there's been a lot of uh, stories that are narratives that are being fitted to the rally, but the rally itself looks extremely speculative, particularly in the second half of this month, uh, where we've seen it move from 14,000 to 18,310 today. So um, I'm suggesting that uh, investors, if they are involved in it, 
they should tread carefully. Although we talk about the debasement of fiat currencies, and I think that will be very much something that we will see with the US dollar next year, fiat currencies are actually backed by the taxpayer revenues of the countries that they're the current countries, the currencies of. That's not the case with Bitcoin. Bitcoin trades at a level that people think it's worth or they think it's worth that, but it'll be worth a lot more tomorrow. And you know, the volatility that we see in Bitcoin leads me to a few warning signs as to whether this can be regarded yet as a mainstream uh, investable asset. Okay, uh, we're coming to the end of the podcast, guys. But before I let you go, can we have a, a brief preview ahead of next week? Uh, Jeff, you go first. It's a pretty quiet data week next week. We have U, uh, U.S. durable goods, uh, but really uh, it's that lull before the storm, which will be the data dump that we get from around the world in the first uh, week of December, which is upon us very, very quickly. I'll be watching for progress on these new uh, fiscal stimulus talks that apparently are going to restart between the Republicans and the Democrats. Uh, if we see some progress on that, uh, which will be a huge surprise to me, but if we do, I think that will be very positive for markets and bearish for the US dollar. Craig? Yeah, I mean, I think the fiscal side is going to be more interesting. We've seen a, a monetary stimulus dump, uh, as, as uh, to use uh, Jeff's term, uh, over the last few weeks. We're likely to get another in December from the ECB and the Fed. Uh, as well. Uh, but the fiscal stimulus side hasn't gone quite either. There's been a lot of fiscal stimulus already provided, but now we're seeing a battle in Brussels uh, over their stimulus program. Their fiscal stimulus, their pandemic relief program was tied uh, to their seven-year budget. And it was agreed almost too easily. Uh, there was internal battles between the more fiscally conservative uh, countries and they're effectively the, the, the net givers versus the net receivers. Uh, but that was overcome pretty quickly um, in terms of how the extra money was going to be raised and how it was going to be dispersed. So it was always one of these things earlier this year. It was like, I can't believe that's actually gone as smoothly as it has. And now you start to run into the challenges, the challenges being... Uh, the, the 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 rules are aligned with the actual disbursement itself, and that's forced Hungary and Poland to veto the budget at the first attempt because of funds being dispersed tied uh, to the rule of law, where there is um, some, shall we say, um, some open questions uh, in, in, in these countries in terms of interpretations, that's a, that's a better word, interpretations as to how the rule of law is being applied. So this is, um, this is being viewed by the Hungarian and Polish parliaments as uh, or, or leaders uh, as being a sign of Brussels interfering in uh, the law of the land, as it were. So they vetoed it. The interesting thing about this is obviously they're massive net beneficiaries. Uh, I think with Poland, it's around 5% of GDP. With Hungary, it's closer to 10%, if I'm not mistaken. So these are massive net beneficiaries. So they really are uh, uh, they really are cutting off their nose to spite their face uh, in this instance. But from their perspective, this is their way of using the pandemic fund in order to uh, in order to stand up to Brussels because they know that obviously the pandemic fund in its very essence is an emergency vehicle uh, that that countries are going to be reliant on. So they're hoping that if they can hold up hold up the process uh, to an, to to a degree, then Brussels will back down on this rule of law 
um, uh, uh, this, 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 the rule of law addition. Um, I'm not sure they're going to have that much success, though. Uh, I feel like Brussels is going to try and persevere on this way and maybe find a way around uh, on the pandemic relief um, because I don't think countries who are going to be net contributors again, the Netherlands, even Germany, France uh, uh, of this world, I don't think they're going to be on board with backing down uh, on, on this particular issue. So this is something that could actually now drag on a little bit over the next few weeks. So aside from Brexit, the negotiations are taking place to the East as well. Uh, and then obviously the fiscal side that Jeff alluded to uh, in, 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 in on Capitol Hill as well. It looks likely to resume as the US starts to see more and more restrictions and the data is going to turn sour there. OK, guys, thanks very much for joining us uh, this week. Have a very, very good weekend and speak to you again soon. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.